Um, The readings from Colossians 3, um, verses 12 to 17. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another, with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him, God the Father, through him. Um, Thank you, Beth. Come on, Simon. It's nice. It's nice when your mum's here to cheer you on on Mother's Day, isn't it? Um, it's great to have Simon here. Um, I've got some Simon over recent time. How long have you been at St. Mass now? Uh, since September. Okay, so it's been great to get to know Simon. Um, Simon has got a heart for church ministry. You took a gap year, that's right, before degree, working for a church and doing some stuff for them. Had a little bit of an opportunity to have a go at all sorts of things, their youth work and children's work and church ministry. Toddler group, toddler group, wow good someone write that down he's done a toddler group um and also preaching and kind of preaching is an area that he kind of we, we spend a bit of time chatting about and, and sense it'd be good to encourage him to do that and as a church we love to help see the gifts that people have got here flourish and grow you know i believe the church is all about we believe in body ministry what i mean by that is that we believe that everyone here if you if you love jesus if you have a pulse god wants to involve you in some way in church life here and perhaps elsewhere and we'd love to enhance that and encourage that and cheer you on in that. And so for, for Simon, wanted to get alongside him and encourage that. Simon's also been involved in CU Life up at the university. And currently, we've spent a bit of time chatting about a group um, meeting in Oldford Park on Sunday mornings. Most of you here are aware at the moment here, we're not using the church on a Sunday morning because the Orthodox Church have been using this church for a while in the mornings. And uh, so we can't use this space for the next few months we're looking at changing, perhaps in the future, doing things. But we're doing stuff ge- geographically in different areas. So Mary and Andrew's house, there's been a couple of things. Bill um, and, and Carol have been doing these great walks and prayer and Bible kind of discussions. And Simon's been starting an initiative over in Oldfield Park. Do you want to just say a couple of things about that? Yeah, so um, I'm passionate about church. Uh, and we at St. Matt's here, Tim bangs on about all the time, about community and about family. Um, I think actually... Some of the best place to understand the Bible better, to grow further in our walk with Jesus, is done in the context of a group. Um, so there's been a group of us who have meet, been meeting um, since December, really. Um, and what we do is very flexible and varied, but really it's about living the way that we read the Bible along with one another. So we'll talk about what we've read that week and how it's challenged us. And, um, And it's exciting because I think the best way to understand the Bible is in the context of how God is speaking to us, speaking through it to us. Um, God's word is living and active. Um, So as we come together, as we share how God has been speaking to each one of us individually, we all grow together. And it's 
been really exciting and we're kind of looking to expand it a bit. So if that's something that uh, excites you, please do come and talk to me afterwards because we're excited to see what God is going to be doing um, as we look to reach out to our friends, to some of the people in Oldfield. Um, yeah, I think it's exciting. And for some of you on a Sunday morning, maybe you're thinking, well, church, does church meet on a Sunday morning? Well, yeah, we meet at all sorts of times. There's obviously midweek life hubs. But for some of you, particularly those of you in the kind of um, Oldfield Park area, if you want to begin to connect with this group and grow with them, it's, it's, it's part of the St. Matt's family. They're hooked in with us, and we're looking to see how we can overlap and also fit, fit in with the snooze, which is the reading the papers together and looking at kind of cultural topics together once a month at the, at the Udell Smith's house, and the, perhaps the group's going to come together for that. Do come and talk to these guys, particularly if you're in the Oldfield Park area. And let me stress, and Simon, I know, was very key to say this, this is not just for students. Apparently, so I'm told, other people other than students also live in the Oldfield Park area, other normal people. So if you're one of those normal people and you'd like to be part of that group, then do. They'd, in fact, they'd really love people who aren't students to be a part of that group, whether you're single, newly married, younger, older, that group is really available as a place to learn and share together. So do talk to Simon or myself about that. Right, let's pray for you and we'll let you go. Father God, I want to thank you for Simon. Thank you, God, that you've placed your word in his heart. Thank you that he has a passion for your word and for your church, for your bride. Lord, bless him as he speaks now. Watch over him. Lord, give us as church ears to hear what you want to say through him and anoint him and bless him and refresh him as he speaks, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to head off to do children's work. Can I just say children's work is fabulous. If you'd like to be involved in children's work, do come and talk to me, and uh, we'd love to get you involved. Um, if any of you, it'd be a good idea to have the passage up on a phone, or we've got some Bibles here at the front. You haven't got that, so we're going to be looking at that together. And I am actually really excited. I'm really excited about what God is doing. I've got a really strong presence of God with us here this evening. I don't know about you. Um, and I was going to begin with a tale of woe and despair, but I'm going to skip that and get right on um, with the point of what I'm here to talk about, which is Jesus, um, because Jesus is flipping exciting. Um, so I think it's easy for us sometimes for Christianity to be viewed as a list of ways to be nice. Um, and there are certainly people... Um, outside the church, outside an experience of Christianity that might view it that way. And for me, I don't think that's true at all. I don't really want my faith to be a list of ways that I can be nice because it's much bigger than anything I could ever do. Because for me, my faith finds its purpose and its meaning in the person of Jesus. And so I want us to think tonight about everything we do being because of Jesus. So if you look at this passage, um, we've got this list of nice things like being kind and compassionate and humble and gentle and patience. And I don't think anyone is going to disagree that those are nice things. I think whether you're a Christian or you weren't a Christian, you'd think, yeah, I, I want to have those things in my life. And lots of people would say that they tried to act that way. So what's the difference? Why is it mentioned here when it's obviously just a list of things that we'd want to live like? Why does Paul mention them? So I'm going to pray for us quickly before we, we get into this because it's it's cool stuff. Lord, I thank you for your presence here amongst us tonight. And I thank you for your word. And I thank you that, that moves alongside your spirit. Lord, as we explore your word together this evening, I pray that you would be speaking to us and that you would, we would be listening to you. Thank you. Amen. So the placement of this passage is 
quite crucial in the context of the letter. Um, so it's written by a guy called Paul. Um, he is a guy who goes around planting churches. He's quite excited about Jesus. Um, and it's written in about year 62 AD-ish uh, to a church in Colossae, which is sort of modern-day Turkey. And he had never actually met them. He didn't really know. Like, he had, he had nothing to do with the, the planting of their church. They didn't really know him. Like, they probably heard of him, but they'd never met him. Um, so he's writing kind of out of the blue almost to this church um, to confront and to cement the importance and the centrality of Jesus and then the consequence of that, what that means. So a little bit earlier in the letter, he says this, the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And he's sort of expanding now the consequences of this because there's a temptation, I guess, amongst the church then and amongst us now for Jesus to be a good guy, but he's much more than just a good guy. And so just before this, he's, this passage that Beth read out to us, he said, to put aside what belongs to the earthly nature. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 5, he says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then a little bit later says, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once did. So put those aside. It's almost like what not to do as a consequence of Jesus. And then we reach this bit we've read now, which is expanding almost what we do do as a consequence of Jesus. Because right in the middle of this, Paul says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. So what we might want to ask ourselves is, what is, what is that message? Who is Jesus and why, why do we care? And some of you might have heard this a million times, and some of you might be hearing this for the first time, and quite frankly, I don't really care which category you're in, because I think we need to keep hearing who Jesus is, because it's really exciting. And so I'm going to look, take a look, quick whistle-stop tour of the narrative of Jesus in the Bible. Um, because I think the way that I, I approach the Bible is to think of it as a narrative. It's got a beginning, a middle, and the end. It's the story of Jesus and God and how they interact with us and how we interact with him and how we interact with each other. Because we are a people of stories. I think that's how we work. Like the best lecturers I have, I'm doing physics. Physics isn't exciting, but the best lecturers make a narrative out of physics. Because that's kind of what we like. We take a principle and then we, we like see how that works out and then we work it out and end up with some weird conclusions a lot of the time. So that's kind of what we're going to do here. Because I think when we look at the Bible, Jesus is the pinnacle. Like Jesus is the center. And all the way through it, it's pointing to Jesus. So this is not the only way you can read the Bible, but it's the way we're going to look at it today. So we're going to have a look at the story of Jesus throughout the whole Bible. And it might move quite quickly, and I apologize. So Paul says in Colossians 1.15 that I read earlier, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And that sounds actually a little bit similar to what another guy wrote in John. In John chapter 1, it's written, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word being Jesus. And that sounds a little bit like something right back at the beginning. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So basically, Jesus has been around for a really long time. All things were made through him. 
I'm not sure we often think about Jesus being the creator God, but he is. He was there at the beginning of all things. He didn't just have his beginning in a stable in Bethlehem. He is eternal. And in Genesis, we have the creation of all things. God creates all things. And the number one top thing that he makes is humanity. Thanks, God. And God declares that the creation is good. I remember once someone said to me, good just doesn't sound good enough. Why didn't God say creation was like fantastic or like awesome or great? He just uses the word good. It just sounds a bit like... But actually, he's saying that it's good. It's not evil. God made things good. And then it doesn't take long, really, for humans to muck it all up and refuse to believe that God is good. We turned our own way. Sin enters the world. And this has massive consequences for humanity, and it changes our relationship with God. But interestingly, right there, right at the beginning, in Genesis 3, there is the first promise of Jesus. This is what it says, Genesis 3, verse 14 and 15. So the Lord God spoke to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So God is saying to the devil, to the enemy, that a day is coming when someone will come who will crush you And right at the beginning, that is our first taste of Jesus' coming. And these promises and hints continue throughout the Old Testament and the story of the people of Israel. God chooses Abraham, not for anything that he might have done, but because he wants to. Genesis 12, it says, The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So even though he's choosing this guy, he's got his, God's got his vision on all of humanity. All people who live everywhere that they will be blessed through him. And that person that comes from Abraham is Jesus. And then God does bless Abraham and his family grows and they end up in Egypt. And there, God rescues these people from oppression and slavery in Egypt through a sacrifice into freedom. If that sounds familiar, that's because it's actually quite similar to what Jesus has done for us. God sends a sacrifice in order that we can be saved from oppression and slavery from sin into freedom. And God gives these people, once they are saved, the law, so that they can be a people that point everyone else towards God. In Exodus, it says, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So God has chosen these people to point everyone towards himself. There is a purpose to what he does. But these people, this holy nation that God has chosen, struggle to do what God has said. And it's not because God has given them something that is deliberately hard. It's not like he said, like, go and, like, I don't know, what's something that's really hard? 
chop down a tree with like a paperclip or something. It's not like he's just like being annoying. It's that actually God is holy and we are not holy. So when he gives us laws that are a reflection of his character, they're going to be difficult because we are not really that much like God in many ways. And so we kind of see that written throughout the Old Testament, of people who try to do what God has done, and sometimes they do it, but a lot of times they don't, because we as humans can't really almost do it. And so they move into the land of current-day Israel and Palestine, um, and sometimes they do quite well, but often they do a rubbish job, and they end up being kicked out and ruled over by other people. And God gradually speaks through the prophets to promise that someone is coming who is going to sort it out who's going to change the rules of the game, almost, who is going to restore the people to what they should be. If you read it throughout Isaiah, you'll see that littered everywhere. And then 400 years after the last prophet has said anything, a baby is born in unusual circumstances to a peasant family in Bethlehem. And you're always like, why would I care? Because that's Jesus. Jesus is born and grows up in a pretty normal way until in his early 30s he starts preaching and teaching in a totally unique way. He started healing people. He started showing spiritual authority. He taught in a way that took what they knew and cranked it up to 11. Imagine being told that to have lust for someone is equivalent to adultery, that to be angry with someone is equivalent to murder. These are things that still sort of, ooh, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that now. And yet, at the same time as doing this, he showed unique compassion to those that others thought were far away from God. Jesus is a person who is known for hanging out with gamblers, drunkards, and prostitutes. I'm certainly not known for hanging out with those people. And he made outrageous claims. Jesus claimed to be able to forgive people's sins. He claimed that he knew God. He referred to God as Father. Not someone who was far off and impossible, but someone who could be known. And to be honest, Jesus got a decidedly mixed reaction. Large crowds came to follow him, but I'm not sure they really understood who he was, because they wanted a classic king who was going to come in and show them what's what, and chop people's heads off, and that sort of thing. And the religious leaders definitely hated him, because what he said about God conflicted so clearly with what they were saying and what they were thinking. And... So Jesus ended up being crucified, a method of execution reserved for criminals that was both exquisitely painful and publicly humiliating. He was essentially given the worst torture instrument of the day, this man who had not done anything wrong. And yet, three days later, reports begin that this person had been seen alive and that the tomb that he had been put in was empty. Those who had been following him were let's be honest, a motley crew, if ever there were one, a group of illiterate fishermen and tax collectors who no one really liked. And they started to boldly declare that this guy who died, Jesus, was the son of God who remained alive and that through his death, forgiveness of sins was possible. And they started to do the things that he had done. They started to heal people. They started to show authority. They taught And communities began to form of very different people, slaves and free, poor and rich, people who had no business dealing with one another, started forming communities where they proclaimed that Jesus is Lord. And 2,000 years later, we are still talking about Jesus, probably the most influential person in history. And do you see it? 
Do you see who Jesus is? As you read the Bible, you'll find that the message of Jesus is littered everywhere. It's throughout this book. This good news, this gospel, is huge. Because the claim that we believe in Jesus is much more than just a good guy who died. Because that's what Paul's writing here. He's saying he is and he was and will forever be the Son of God. There in the beginning, creator of all things, who came to earth in human form and yet is still God. Who lived as one of us and yet so unlike us. In his unjust and unfair death, everything that we have done is treated unjustly and unfairly because God has forgiven us from all that we have done wrong. How nuts is that? That this guy who died a criminal's death, publicly humiliated, shamed in front of everyone who would have known him, because of that death, we get to have the things that we have done wrong forgiven by God. That's not fair. And more than just that, as if I could say just that, God has given us rich, abundantly and richly given us gifts and honor. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling amongst us, everyone who believes in Jesus. And this Holy Spirit is the fullness of God dwelling inside us. Jesus doesn't walk physically alongside us, but instead we have something better. God's with us in all situations and all things. And this is what Paul is writing about in Colossians. In Colossians 1:21, he says this, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard, and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So we can have confidence in God because of these two things that fit alongside each other. That in the cross, God demonstrates his love for us by sending Jesus to die for us. And then in the empty tomb, God demonstrating his power, that he has power even over death. And this is the message of Christ that Paul is saying that is to dwell among us richly. He is the one who makes us distinctive. As Christians, we bear his name. His name is the name we carry. Like you imagine going into a shop and you like, they have the, like, if you work at Tesco, you've got like name Tesco on you because like, that's who you're representing. And we as Christians are representing Jesus. We literally carry his name. And I think we never need to stop hearing this story of Jesus because it's a story of Jesus that displays the character of God and it's a story of Jesus that displays him so magnificently and it is so exciting. So let's turn back to the passage and look again at this list of things that Paul says for us to do. He says, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. I don't know about you, but compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience are not easy things for me to do. And each of these ones you could probably talk about for like half an hour on at least, or loads more, maybe, by themselves. And it's quite an active thing, isn't it? Clothe yourselves, like an active putting on of these virtues. But if you're anything like me, just trying to do these things more doesn't really work. You kind of read it in light of the previous bits that Paul said. That we are chosen, we're holy, we're dearly loved. God doesn't say, here this is, go do it, and leave us to it. 
He has chosen us for these things, set us apart for them, and continues to love us. So these are all in light of Jesus. So when we are trying to have these virtues more present in our lives, it's not just us striving for it, it's a reflection of the one we follow. Because just working in ourselves doesn't need anywhere. And you might look at these lists and think, oh, it's just like a list of ways to be nice. I'm not sure it is. To be radically kind to someone is going to cost me something. Because I'm going to have to maybe give them something that I don't really want to give. To be gentle might mean having to put aside the reaction that I want to something and choose to put that to one side. To be humble might mean that someone else has to get the credit instead of me. To be compassionate might mean having to show love to someone who I really don't really like. To be patient might mean having to wait when I really don't want to. These things are not just a polite niceness. For Lent, I've signed up to a thing called 40 Acts, which some of you might have heard of. Every day they send you an email of some challenges for generosity, and I think I've done none of them, because most of the time I look at them and I think, I couldn't do that. That's just really hard. So how do we do these things? We rely on the spirit that is inside us to bring these things out of us. They sound kind of similar, these things, to the fruit of the spirit. Because these things are a work of God's spirit being at work within us. And then at the end, a little bit further on, Paul says this, Over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. It's impossible to do any of these things without love. Love for other people, love for God, even love for ourselves to some extent. Compassion that doesn't come from God's compassion for us is dry. Kindness without love for others is just empty. Humility without an appreciation for your own value is just going to drain you. Forgiveness for others comes in light of the forgiveness we have because God has forgiven us. And love unites all of these things, and we see it most clearly in the love of Jesus. It's like the pastry of a pie. Without the pastry, you just have like a bunch of filling on a plate. That's not a pie. You need the pastry to hold it all together, to bind it all together. Love is vital. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. And I have, if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Actions without love, just empty almost. And yet we see that love shown most clearly in Jesus. He demonstrated his love for us by dying for us. And what I think is quite striking about this passage is that Paul is talking collectively. He's not saying you as an individual go out and be kind and compassionate and humble. But he's saying you as a community, as a family, as a church, go build these things up in one another. Because it's so often, isn't it, to think of 
building nice things in my life as something that I will go off and do. Like I'll go off and I'll try really hard to be kind and that will make me kind. But what he's saying here is he's writing to God's chosen people to bear with each other, to forgive one another. Because it is as a church that we are to encourage one another to live for Jesus. This happens on a Sunday, yeah. But from my experience, it happens so much more from small groups and from individual relationships. And that's why I, like, I would encourage you, if you're not part of some form of small group, maybe a life hub, uh, maybe join us on a Sunday morning or wherever the church is that you are, um, build those things into your lives because that is where we grow. This Paul goes on to say, let peace rule because as members of one body, i.e. together, we have been called in peace. Let Christ dwell among us as we teach and admonish one another. And in this section, which could almost be titled, put on the new self, it's a joint effort to put on our new selves together. And in smaller groups, we can build relationships with one another, where we sharpen each other and we help each other and we support one another to become more and more the people that Jesus has made us to be. As Jesus lives and breathes through our words and, and encouragements to one another, so will he more and more live within our lives in everything that we do. Do you have relationships like that? Where they are strengthening you because you are encouraging each other with the words of Jesus? I would really encourage you to do that. And as the message of Jesus lives amongst us, as we tell and retell one another what he has done for us and how we have seen that lived out, we become a better and better reflection of who he is. Incidentally, that's what we're going to do later in communion. We're going to share together again what Jesus has done for us. And this is only possible by the spirit that lives amongst us and within us and is constantly shaping and molding us. Because day by day we can take aspects of our lives and hold them up against Jesus' character and say, do these match up? Not because we want to beat ourselves up or we're going to force ourselves to become something we're not, but because I want my life to be the best reflection of the best person I know, and that's Jesus. And a few years ago, I first started thinking about this idea of becoming more like Jesus. I kind of got a bit scared, because I thought I was going to become a Christian robot. That essentially, Jesus would, in becoming more like Jesus, I was going to lose all aspects of my personality and everything that made up me, and I was just going to become like, like this like, identikit Christian, I guess, that like, moved along and, and did things because I looked like Jesus, because we were all going to look like Jesus. I don't think that's what it is. I heard it much better as like this, that in seeking God first, I will become more like Jesus, yes, but I will also become more unlike any other person around me, as I become more like the unique person that God has made me to be. God is not really in the business of cloning Christians. And how you work out the message of Jesus in your life is going to look different to how it's going to look in my life, because we're different people. But both of us can give thanks to God in everything that we do in the name of the Lord Jesus. At the end of my days, I want to be someone who people say, Simon, the way he lived his life was because of Jesus. So that it is Jesus who gets the recognition for all the things that I do, and not me. So what about the areas of your lives? Is all that we do done in the name of the Lord Jesus? For me, 
in my work, I struggle to feel like my uni work is important or valuable. I don't really like physics very much sometimes. Sorry, Mary. In my friendships, I wonder whether I support them as well as I could do. Am I too selfish, almost, with my friendships, not willing to push the boat out? I love my family, but do I sometimes hold back from talking about God with them? Does my older brother get who Jesus is to me when he's clearly not that interested? With my future, am I someone who truly trusts my future in the hands of God? What about my possessions? Do I hold on too tightly to the things that belong to me? Or seek out too much the next thing that I think will make my life better? And each of these things and so many more can be a way to beat ourselves up for not being full of the message of Christ. But each one of these is also an area where we have an opportunity to change that. I count it as a victory. I think God probably does too. When I see God in some of my physics, when I'm studying something and I think, wow, I can see some of your glory in creation here, God. I rejoice at being able to have a conversation with Jesus with some of my course mates, however brief, because I can see the richness that he could bring to their lives and hopefully that they will get it too. As Jesus dwells amongst us by his spirit in the words that we say to each other, in the songs that we sing together, these things will become more and more a part of the fabric of our lives. The biggest faith, the biggest threat to my faith is to forget. To forget the message of Jesus, to forget what he's done for me. And the thing is that God will never forget us. Because we see that written throughout the story of the Bible, that God never forgets his people. Everything we do because of Jesus, let him be our motivator. When we are tired, when we are lonely, when we are scared when we're weary, when we're angry, when we're joyous, when we're happy. It is always because of what Jesus has done for us that we are motivated to do everything else. Some of you might have a difficulty in believing and doing that, if you're being honest, because I know I have. That I've spent weeks where I've just been furious with God and not really wanted that much to listen to what he said in spite of his goodness. But the thing is, that doesn't change who he is. Because we see in the cross and in the empty tomb that we can rely and trust on God because he is unchanging and eternal and he has demonstrated his love in the cross of Jesus and his power in the empty tomb. So we can come to him with our frustrations, with our anger, and we can hand it over to him. There's a song by Ren Collective which has the line, I need you God, but I want to need you more. I often think that that's what I want in my life. I want, I want to be increasingly reliant on him. And I want that even more and more and more and more and more. And that doesn't happen individually. That happens collectively and communally. And so shortly we're going to celebrate communion together so that we as a community remember what Jesus has done for us. Communion is also known as Eucharist. This has a root in the Greek word for thankfulness, for thanking God. So we're going to come to him with thankful hearts and celebrate the good news of Jesus. But alongside that, I think sometimes we need to respond. We need to, we need to say to Jesus, Jesus, I want to, I want to lay it all before you because of what you have done for me. And we might be doing that 
for the hundredth time, or we might be doing that for the first time. But either way, it's worth doing because of him, because of his character, because of Jesus. So, during communion, we will have a time where if you want to respond, there will be people around, and you can go to them, and you can pray with them, and we'll be happy to pray one with you together, um, because we are a community here. But I'm going to, just going to have a moment of quiet now. I want you to think about your life, just a small thing. I want you to think about Jesus. and who he is, and what he has done. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the glory of your story written all across creation from the beginning to the end that we see you there in the midst of it all. I thank you that in the cross we see your love shown for us, demonstrated for us with arms stretched wide. Lord, I thank you that in the empty tomb we see your power over death and that we can have confidence that because of you our sins are forgiven. Lord Jesus, I pray that your story, the message of you, would dwell amongst us richly as individuals and as a community. That we would be drawing ever closer to you. Lord Jesus, I pray that in amongst the midst and the chaos of our lives, we would be able to hand them over to you and know that you dwell in and amongst the mess and the brokenness. We need you, God, but we want to need you more. So Lord, would you fill us again with a realization of the excitement of your message not so that we can go home and be excited and fall asleep and wake up tomorrow for another day but so that we wake up tomorrow full again of the excitement of your message and every day again we wake up excited about you Jesus because of what you have done that we are people defined by you and by your name and that that is what we let lead us onwards Would you help us to be a people that follow you with all our hearts? And where people will say of us that the things we did were because of Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.